Hey guys, I'm Stippy. My name is Wyatt Troy. And welcome to Behind the Door. We interview artists and music industry experts on an emotional, philosophical, and artistic level to get inside their heads, gather the best information, and then bring it back to you. By the way, this is a companion podcast to our new YouTube series, In the Daw, where we invite artists to dissect their songs in real time. If you have any artists you would like to see come on the show, or if you have any feedback in general, you can contact me at Wyatt at musicandstuffllc.com. In an, in an American accent? Like, is that a real thing? I can. The more I talk to someone who's American, slowly I can, like, slip it in. Like, how would you say, hey? I don't know how to say this is sippy. I don't know how to say sippy American. Sippy. 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 And you're, you're, you're listening to Behind the Door. <laughs> Behind the Door. That's how you say it. Behind the Door. Behind, behind the Door. The Door. We just say Door. Oh. It sounds like a door, but like door. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to start you off, I have three deep questions that are probably funny-ish, but it just kind of gets your mind going. So when two people are eating at home, it's really awkward to eat two different things. But when you're out and you know you're go- you're going out to eat, why is it okay to eat two different things? And it would actually be awkward to eat the same thing. I have never thought about that, but that is actually a very could be a very deep and philosophical. question question. To be honest, I actually think there's no problems with eating two different meals at home, but I think there's like a laziness factor. It's like, oh, we have to literally prepare two different meals. That is so inconvenient. I just want to come home and eat and go to bed. Like, I don't want to mess around with this whole like, oh, you're eating meat, you're vegan. Let's, you know, organize some, you know, two different meals. No, it's just like the convenience factor is like, let's just eat the same thing because it's just easy. But you're right about when you go out and you, if you both get the same meal, everyone, like I'm the same. Like if I like see someone order something that I wanted, I'm like, oh, now I can't get it. Like that's so awkward. But I think it's because when you go out, like everyone, well, I don't know, me personally, like you kind of want, you want to try everything on the menu almost. So like you kind of figure if the person next to you gets something different, like you have the opportunity to be like, oh, I'll just have a taste, you know, like that kind of, or at least you hope that they're going to be like that if they're not open to that you're like man come on i would have ordered the same thing had i've known you're not going to share is that is that a common thing in australia like everyone just kind of knows to to share their meals i don't think it is but i think out of courtesy everyone kind of just offers like if you say oh that looks so good oh do you want to try some like it's just kind of like common courtesy i guess (laughs) maybe not maybe it's just the people i know i think in the states we're like very like territorial about our food yeah i probably agree with that it's like yeah cool thanks it does look good and i'm enjoying it you can just keep watching me enjoy this (laughs) question number two is arguably okay so there's a preface to this question so the first preface is arguably the brain is the most important organ of the body correct okay how do we know that though because our brains are the who's telling us that what if there's actually another organ man this is yeah this is we're going right down in the rabbit hole here so i random little backstory i did at i went to uni university at uni i did exercise and sports science or was a bachelor of applied science but it meant that i was doing things like biochemistry biology biomechanics all this kind of stuff and we had to do neuroscience my teachers just hated me because the thing that i so we did psychology and neuroscience and the thing is like neuroscience is very much the science behind the connections the synapses the whole you know all the all the neurotransmission transmitters and all that sort of thing 
obviously psychology is very different. It's like the way of thinking and conscious thought and all that stuff. What I totally didn't understand and constantly questioned my lectures about was how does a bunch of chemical reactions turn into conscious thought? And they were like, well, we don't know. Like, don't ask us this question. You're either in neuroscience or you're in psychology. You're not in both. It's one or the other. But I totally, I totally see like that question in terms of how do we know? Because it's our minds. I, I think that about everything. How do we know that's a computer? How do we know that's a frog? Is there a frog on the wall? I don't know where frogs. Does that happen on Australia a lot? They're just frogs walking across the wall. Actually, I just went up to the Queensland and that is how it is. Frogs really? just like jumping around everywhere. You're like, oh. Along the same vein of thought, do you ever watch Vsauce? Do you know what that is? Vsauce? No. An amazing YouTube channel. Just like, if you like questions like this, it's just, yeah, that is good. So on one of the questions is, it's the last, he was talking about the last Thursday theory, which last Thursday theory states, how do you know the entire universe didn't come into existence last Thursday? And of course, the common answers are like, well, we have memories past that or we have evidence past that. It's like, how do you know that didn't just form last Thursday? How do you know, Laura? What? What? <laughs> my mind just like imploded. As you would... So the theory is like, my memory doesn't go past last Thursday? Theory is, how do you know that your memories weren't just created last Thursday, but the memories say that it goes clear back? Some black mirror <laughs> stuff. I, I Like, I kind of love that stuff. But then like, you get to a point where you're like, oh, this is weird. Let's yeah. stop talking about it. Let's it's do something really fun. mundane and normal to like... <laughs> get ourselves out of it. I feel like I need to like ask other people this when I first meet them being like, all right, let's iron some things out. Okay, I got one. You know what natural selection is, right? Yes. Okay, for those who are listening who don't know what natural selection is. So like in terms of like, you know, animals or 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 humans or whatever, the animals or the humans or the creatures or whatever with the strongest traits are the ones that keep going because they survive the longest. And so if they survive, they mate, pass on their genes, so on and so forth. If natural selection is true, then every time you and I or anyone else in the world kills a spider, we're technically killing off the weak ones and we're making a super race of spiders. Is that correct? I come from a place where there are a lot of spiders. <laughs> I'm almost an expert in this field. I'm a little bit of a, a hippie. Well, I'm actually not a hippie, but people kind of say that I am in terms of like, I get really funny about like squishing bugs like that. And I think also here in Australia, we have a different reaction to spiders because on the one hand, you're like, the spider freaked me out. But on the other hand, you know that most of them aren't going to hurt you. Most of them are actually, the big scary ones are actually the friendly ones who aren't going to bite you. They're not going to hurt you. And if anything... They get rid of all the other bugs and all the mosquitoes and the things that actually like are annoying and actually like kind of hurt you a little bit. So in terms of like the whole squishing spider theory, I don't think that if you came across five spiders, I don't really think that the fastest or the strongest one would necessarily get away because it's like, I mean, they're quick, but like, I don't think there's like a big difference. But I think in that situation, okay, say for example, I had five spiders in front of me and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to squish them. I think it would almost be luck because... The fifth one's going to get away because I'm busy squashing the other ones. You know what I mean? I don't know. That's just like flipping the theory on its head. What's the biggest spider you've seen? I've had quite a few like interesting interactions with spiders. Do you wake up to them crawling on you? The biggest one is probably the size of my hand. I mean, I have like smaller hands than a normal person, but the size of my hand is probably, it's called a huntsman spider and they're quite common. You see them, I mean, you don't see them all the time. Like I live in in areas where like there are a lot of bugs and spiders and animals and things like that. But yeah, usually the size of my hand, but they're the ones that are like 
the nice ones. Like they just sit in a corner and they're like, I'm just here to eat the mosquitoes. I'll leave you alone. Don't worry about me. I'm not going to jump on you. Like, But they're the ones I catch and release because it's like an animal. I don't know how to ex- explain it. They're the ones that you're like, oh, you're big enough for me to recognize as like a living thing. So I'm going to catch you and oh, release you. Kind of thing. Not that they aren't all, but like also they're not harm. Like they're not going to hurt you. So you kind of just catch them and let them go. But yeah, that's probably the biggest one I've seen. But I've had like, I've had, I've had spot. I once put my pants on and there was a spider in there i've like fallen asleep with like spiders like above my head just things like that i know things like that happen what but they're not they're not the they're not the ones that hurt you so they're like kind of all right the the scary ones that well there's a there's a couple of different scary ones that you kind of like don't mess with and i've only seen i've only seen one of those in real life and i live in where the spiders live if you know what i mean like so many americans are like i'm not going to australia because there's spiders and things can that can kill you and all this stuff i'm like i have lived in the spider infested areas my whole life and i've seen one whole time so it's like the ones that want to kill you stay as far away from you sorry they don't want to kill you but the ones that can kill you stay as far away from you as they can because they're scared and they're like i just want to live my life and please leave me alone living in utah you've been to the states right yeah have you been to utah it's a desert like it's desert like like proper desert like spiders here are like black widows brown recluses hobo spiders things that you have to go to the hospital after you get bit and hopefully you get to keep a limb i guess that's just i guess that's just with the hobo spider so like to think about letting a spider live oh. yeah but the spiders like the ones that are going to kill me I, and rest may they rest in peace but the ones <laughs> going to kill me I do not let them live unfortunately and no there's no natural selection they're not fast enough to get away I'm just like I gotcha oh. actually usually I don't do the I don't actually kill them because I feel uncomfortable so I'll just trap it and then I go someone else someone else deal with that do you have scorpions no we don't have scorpions we have snakes and not scorpions do you have sand puppies do you have sand puppies what is that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so sand puppy is like if you took a spider, like the creepiest spider you can think about and the creepiest scorpion that you think about and like they fought and like there's just like a bunch of limbs and everywhere and then some scientists came together and made it into a bug. That's what it that that's what it is. That's scary. It's terrifying. It's the thing. It's the people from like in LA who are like, oh my gosh, there's all these things that can kill you in Australia. I'm like, mate, they're <laughs> no, they don't want to come anywhere near you. They're not they're not just like making their life about coming after you. And there are so many more things that can kill you in LA than there are in Australia. Like <laughs> like gangsters. Well, realistically, anyway. Crazy people are a lot more dangerous than spiders. So now that we got you warmed up, we have Laura also known as Sippy here today. Crazy stoked for this. How, how are you doing today, by the way? I, I guess I didn't ask you that. I am very good. Today <laughs> is a good day. And the very first question that I have for you, Sippy, is this. If I was to ask you one question in this entire interview and you're like, yes, I'm super glad he asked that question, what would that question be? I mean, I guess the question I, I always like is sort of, not where I've come from, but like, how did I get to this point? Because I just find it, I know it's a super broad question, but it's kind of, it pretty much gives a, a huge insight into to how I've gotten from where I started to here. And and I think a lot of questions and experience can kind of like stem off that. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, that's, I know that's super broad, but. Okay, so here's a question for you. How did you get to where you are now? <laughs> so longhand, shorthand kind of thing. I guess I'll, I'll sort of put it into like a brief summary. 
but pretty much how did I get to, you know, go full time into music production? I guess starting way back as a kid, I've always been into playing instruments. I played piano from super young age. I probably started about seven or something. And from the very start, I just loved making my own little melodies and, you know, just playing along. Obviously, nothing was structured in terms of songwriting. I just was like, oh, like I'm just going to make up my own songs. I was always really passionate about that sort of thing. And when I got into high school, so around 12, 13 kind of age, I then picked up a guitar and started teaching myself to play the guitar. I also started playing drums. And wait, drums wait, wait, hold became... up, hold up. You go to high school at 12 or 13? Yeah, high school. So we do primary school is kindergarten, which is the year before grade one up until year six. So that's about five years old until 12. And then high school is 12 years old till 18. So you go to high school for six years? Yeah, it's it's just we only have two, we have primary school and high school not we don't have a middle school or anything like that whoa okay <laughs> keep going sorry, sorry i didn't mean to cut you yeah off. <laughs> that's right yeah so i started playing drums which were like sort of my main instrument all through high school i loved it I pretty much like my parents wouldn't let me have a drum kit so if i wanted to practice i had to go into school early every morning and, and get in there and practice even by the time I got better, like the only way I was allowed a drum kit is I traded a basketball hoop for a drum kit and like just kind of like tried to get my hands on it. Even when I had it, my parents were like, you can't play it when we're here. Like not that they were being discouraging, but I was pretty bad at the start. So Sounds like a really expensive basketball hoop. Yeah, right. I was like, you really want the basketball? Okay. Because everyone, all parents want to get rid of drum kits. Their kids take up drums for like six months and then they never play it again. And then there's this awkward, uncomfortable thing thing in the middle of the room that the parents are like, get rid of it. (laughs) Very into that. And then at the end of high school, like I did music all through high school and I was doing a lot of composition, but the composition was more with orchestras and brass bands. And, you know, you know, I was in a couple of bands that I kind of made with people just writing pop songs or writing more orchestral songs or writing big band brass tracks and things. Sometimes I would work with 25, you know, different instrumentalists with strings and trombones and trumpets. You know, it was all very live sort of stuff, very much not in the computer at all, unless I was recording with a microphone phone and turning it into an mp3 but it was very much live and then I kind of I left school and I assumed if you weren't the best at whatever instrument you were playing then there was no career for you and and I didn't really think I was a very good composer I loved it but I just or songwriter you know I just thought I loved doing it and it was good fun but I didn't think I was the best which in my mind was what I needed to be in order to make a career in music so went to uni and did Bachelor of Applied Science in Exercise and Sports Science completely unrelated Mm -hmm. three years great degree got through it and and never did anything with it. <laughs> but I learned a lot, which is good. But in that time, I actually, I missed music so much. And I asked someone if they could teach me. I, I had started hearing producers. Like this was when Flume was really starting to, to take off. And, and that's when it really kind of clicked. I don't know why with him specifically, but it clicked. Oh, he's made all of this whole song inside his computer. Like, and that's it. He didn't need a guitarist there. or He didn't need, you know, all these, all these peoples. That kind of made me go, oh, that'll be that'll be fun. If I learn to produce, I can just do it for fun, open up my computer wherever I am. I don't need, you know, other people, anything like that. So I asked someone to teach me. But of course, I wasn't really into electronic music. So when they sat down to teach me, they were like, you have no idea what's going on. Like, this is like impossible to teach you this stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of have no idea what's going on. So he... He told me to go into a, a DJ competition, which we have over here in Australia called Your Shot. And 
pretty much the theory behind it is they teach you how to DJ and then you all play at this big event and you compete. And teaching me to DJ just really taught me about electronic music, taught me the structure and and really sort of, it, it actually taught me a lot. Um, and it also sort of got me into that tech world. Um, yeah, I know CDJs aren't as extensive as, you know, production sure. software, but it was just sort of getting me in the right headspace. So I went in the competition, had a great time, didn't win or anything, but got a residency from there at Chinese Laundry, which is a really one of the most reputable clubs over over here. And I was playing always from day one, my, my passion was bass music. I was really into dubstep, glitch hop, drum and bass, trap, you know, all that kind of all of that kind of stuff. Really just heavy bass stuff that was kind of my thing. So so I just started DJing for fun. I was still at uni, so I was just going for it and just having fun. And it just kind of kept rolling and rolling. I, I, you know, worked pretty hard at it. I would take any gig that came my way. I would sit in the corner and play five hours to like an empty bar. Just anything to give me some experience at that point, which was awesome. And I, and I definitely think that that really helped me a lot because my skills became so developed because I just spent... I, I didn't put aside the time to practice. I would take the gigs that were five hours because it forces you to practice under pressure as well. So then from there, I was about to finish my uni degree and I was working at a bar and it was closing down. I was living at home. I had all this money saved up and I was like, well, I can either go get another bar job for six months or I can just go out and look for experience in the, you know, in the music industry just to see what it's all about, you know, the kind of back end sort of stuff. So I approached this guy that I knew through the Your Shot competition called Sam and um, Sam Krokov. And I said, look, I just want to learn. Can I just come in? I'll work for free. I'll help you out with whatever you need. I just want to learn. And at the time, he was the manager for Tiger Lily and a couple of other artists. And he also was, running your shot as well. So I came in, I worked for him probably three, four days max and just threw everything into it. I was just like, you know, it was once every week or every two weeks and anything he said, I just went all out and I loved it and I was just so excited and passionate. Anyway, after only those that month or so, he said, hey, I want to I bring you in um, to talk to myself and someone else called Steve Pillimer who was working with your shot at the time. We've sort of got a proposition for you. And pretty much they came to me and said, we're looking to open up a DJ school to train all of the your shot contestants and you're passionate, you're excited and we think you can do a really good job for it. And so pretty much it was, they were fronting, you know, they were like the investors and I just had to, they said, we want a DJ school. Well, they want three DJ schools, one in Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne and you just go for it. So at 21, I finished uni, went straight into it, had no experience, had no idea what I was doing and I just went, I got to build some DJ schools. Like, (laughs) let's do this built it that year and just I learned so much I pretty much built a business from nothing and with no one else because they ended up Steve ended up moving over to the states to do your shot USA Sam went off and was doing other work he wasn't doing your shot anymore so literally at 21 I just went all right let's you know I'm talking to real estate agents I had builders I had trainers teachers I'm flying into state every week it was just like chaos <laughs> um, and so in those uh, so we were running I was working there for eight months we were sort of in the middle of it for six months and we trained for three months. And in three months, we trained 700 people, which was pretty full on. And I was teaching classes and running schools. And it was just, anyway, it was awesome. I learned so much. And then after that, I actually went over to the States. I met a DJ producer, Bear Grylls, who, you know, we became, yeah, we became great friends. We just got on really well. And he just kind of said, look, he saw me play and he was like, I didn't really have the big picture in mind. I was just doing whatever I could do. And 
he said, look, come over to the States and see what it's about, you know, because bass music here is, you know, it's got a bit of a following, but it's it's nothing like the States. Yeah. The States is just so many people. So I went over and watched some of his shows, watched Excision play, watched Protohype, like a whole heap of people. And I just saw what it was and just went, wow. Like part of me was like, wow, this is massive. But part of me was like, wow, I could do this. Like I could, and, and not, I could do this beyond state. Well, I mean, I love performing and playing, but more like I can grind, I can write music i can really get in here and and be a part of it i pretty much came back applied for icon collective straight away they they like i saw how much it was i was doing it online saw how much it was i was like i don't start working until march i have this much money saved up if i just sit at home and don't do anything i'll be able to pay those first three months then 80 percent of my salary will go to icon and then hopefully i will have saved up the other 20 percent to pay the last three months i didn't even think about any of that stuff i didn't think about money i didn't think about how much time i had i just went i have to do this. This is the most important thing for me right now. And so I started it. The first three months were like, I, I felt like I knew nothing. Like, sure, I knew about songwriting, things like that. But music production, I had no idea. I knew how to use Ableton, but that was about it. And so I just went to every class. And because it's based in LA, I'm waking up at 3am to go to office hours and I'm doing my mentor sessions and I'm just going crazy. You have to, online, you have to hand in a lot of assignments because they have to prove that you're doing the work. So I'm just going for it. And then the school startup. So I'm working seven days a week with the school uh, because on the weekends, we travel into state to run events and all that sort of stuff. And we'll work from 6am till 11pm on those weekends. So what I would do is I would wake up at about 3.30 in the morning, do my work, go to the event that we're running, go from 6am till 11pm, work from 11pm until I fall asleep, which was usually like 12.30, 1 o'clock, sleep for two or so hours, wake up, do it. Like It was like chaos. It's like I even remember at one event I had like I had half an hour between I'd gotten my work done so quickly and we were starting something in half an hour ran into a back storeroom got my laptop out started recording vocals for something I had a jacket over my head as like a little vocal booth and was just like singing this little jingle so it was it was it was an intense time I was probably normal night like good amount of sleep would be just five hours a night but I mean I had one weekend where we were doing the events and I realized over five days I'd only slept eight hours it was just oh like my gosh. go 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 like get it done but luckily you know I probably had I probably had five months of the year you know split between the beginning and end that weren't that chaotic but I just knew I was like I need to do this I have to get through it and I remember right in the middle of the year when I was going through all this I wasn't sleeping or anything uh, I found out that both my grandma and my uncle had terminal cancer and my grandma passed away during all this so I'm going from looking after her going to the hospital you know doing all this sort of stuff and it was just and I had to get through it my teachers were being I mean super supportive but they were also like you got to push you got to you know you got to get through this and it was it was insane and I think that really taught me how to really just pump out music I, like I know it sounds insensitive in terms of the creative world but it just taught me how to really get the job done and really pump out music and then the next year I kept working at the school and was just working on finishing songs and I released a couple of tracks probably about six tracks over the year from about March April last year and which was really awesome it really you know got me into finishing my tracks and then more recently, I I met someone over here. His his name's Naderi. I mean, he's quite he's quite well known uh, along the along the producers. But found out he lived not far from me, and we sort of connected over Twitter. We had a couple of mutual friends, and you know, we just hung out a little bit. Started working on a track together, and pretty much he gave me a massive opportunity. 
you know, he said, come in, I'll, I'll start teaching you things. I, I just pretty much went in there and was like, I'll help you with anything because I just figured I'm going to learn and I'm just going to absorb everything. So at first it was more, I was just coming in to help him with anything, whether it was mundane things like bouncing stems or whether it was helping with writing melodies or, you know, doing some sound design or whatever. I was just in there sort of interning and just working. And then eventually we kind of made it a little bit more structured and a bit more serious. And now he's, he's come on to, to, he's come on essentially as my development manager. So he's, he's said, I'm going to sit there. I'm going to teach you everything, you know, in terms of improving my production and then also helping me along with the Sippy project to, to really develop me into a, an artist that, that can really write some, some cool stuff. And in there, I'm, I'm also doing a lot of mix downs for people, you know, mix down and mastering and, you know, doing productions for pop singers and things like that, which is amazing experience yeah. as well. Was the first time that you, quote unquote, heard about Naderi, was that during the Icon Q&A? I'd actually heard about him before the Icon Q&A. Okay. And I remember during his Q&A, again, it was LA time. So I had to wake up at some ridiculous hour and I was sitting in my bed watching the Icon Q&A on my phone. And I remember typing in all these like little questions <laughs> like while I was sitting there. I, rem- I remember being in that Q&A with you because I was an online student as well at the time. I think you asked a question about the serum sub base or something like that? Was that you? Yeah, that, that was, was you. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a legit question and he told me. Yeah, you should see every day. Like, you know, I ask questions. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, no. Nah. But it, it's funny because the questions I do ask, like I've come to realize that where I came from, so like I learned a lot of my production through dubs. I've had so many amazing producers and like not to get into the gender stuff, but I've had a lot of male producers who have been super supportive, super helpful and have have taught me a lot of things, but a lot of them are in the dubstep realm. And there was almost like, and this is not, you know, a blanket rule, but there are a lot of them that are very much almost like paint by numbers in terms of creating, well, not as, not creating as much, but more with mixing and sort of sound design and that kind of thing. And so I came from this realm where it was like, oh, your kick and your snare have to hit at negative 8 dB and then you mix everything to that. And Sean, the thing that he kind of taught me when I first came in, he was like, it sounds good. You know, if it sounds, don't worry about the rules, don't worry about the numbers, you know, does it sound good? Does it not sound good? And he's very, he's almost the opposite. He just goes in and rips in, he changes things as if it's no big deal. Me asking those questions, you know, like he's so the opposite. He's like, nah, you know, do this, this sounds cool, this sounds cool, you know, like, and he's, but in saying that he's not, he's not rules-based. He's not like, this is how you have to do it. If it sounds cool. And that's why he keeps developing because when I first came in, like I was a nobody, I'd been writing music for a year and a half and I would go, oh, like, I think it'd be cool if you do this. And he goes, oh my gosh. And he listens and he goes for it. You know, he doesn't have the ego that goes, well, I've been here longer than you. I know what I'm doing. You know, he he very much just, just pulls out everything and it, it's definitely a different way to be. And it means that you create, you really create things, you know, when you're not stuck, yeah. stuck in those rules. During, when you, when you were talking about that, you said that you know the the majority of the the male producers that you've worked with is have been uh, have been very kind to you have been very respectful and I'm I'm really happy to hear that I sent over the the podcast that I did with Laura Bram and we talked about you in there and so with you being a woman in the, the electronic field this is inevitable that I was going to ask you this question and about this concept so I mean uh, you said you know for the majority they have treated you uh, very very well the males in the in the industry have I mean uh, has there been times when people haven't because you are a woman? I said the majority, but I mean, I say it as in the majority of <laughs> the people that I have built relationships mm. with. 
if that makes sense. There are plenty of, I mean, like anything, you know, there's there's plenty of, you know, I, I see it. I see the discrimination, all that stuff. But the important thing for me is like, I never fixate on that because it becomes impossible to move on. And, and you yourself become so jaded by things like that, that you literally can't continue to move on and continue to grow. I definitely see it. But the thing that's awesome, and, and I have said this to so many people and I, I've sort of reflected on it is, you know, I, I always say like, wow, I'm so, I'm so lucky to be surrounded by so many. And I don't really have a lot of interactions with female producers, purely just I haven't come across them. Not because I don't, I obviously it's not because I don't want to, but I just haven't, you know, we haven't crossed paths. But in terms of the male producers I've, I've come across, I have said like, I'm so lucky to, you know, have have such amazing people surrounding me. And what people have said is, well, it's not luck. You know, I it's not like I haven't stumbled across people who aren't like that, but I obviously subconsciously have surrounded myself with with those kind of people. And, you know, if, if someone doesn't treat me like that straight off, I go, no worries like it's nice to meet you we won't be friends you know what I mean like we're not going to have interactions because there's not really neither of us are going to get anything out of it you're obviously not going to get what you want out of it and it's going to be nothing to me but I've definitely experienced it but you know I I also experienced positive things by being a female in the industry like people remember me purely because I was the only girl in the room talking about you know isotope trash you know what I mean like you know and that's there's there's credit in that too and and I obviously want females to be empowered to go out and and work in the industry but then they like anyone need to work hard as well um and I think there's been a lot of awareness around it I have I definitely have a lot of males in the industry who have just like really supported me from day one. Dr. Werewolf, Adam Forster, he lives over here. He pretty much mentored me from day one. Everything from DJing, he saw me first start producing when I was absolutely terrible. And he's been there every step of the way. And then people like Graham, phase one, he who used to live over there and now he lives in LA and I'm really sad. But he's he's always had an open here. He's he's always been awesome about it. And and then people like Tazoki, you know, there's there's all these all these amazingly talented producers who have have always been there to teach me, critique, you know, show me new tricks and all that stuff. Especially when at the start, when I had no idea and I was really struggling, you know. Now it's a little different because at least I know what they're talking about. You know what I mean? At the yeah. start, I was almost like, this is all going way over my head. But yeah. it is. Um, I've definitely had had the support there, and they're the people that I choose to, you know, surround myself with. And and I will experience discrimination. I've 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 felt it to be honest more in Australia than I have over in the States. I find more industry wise, you know, I've experienced it in terms of, of gigs and, and opportunities that are often not given to women because it's almost like people don't take them seriously. And and it is disheartening. I've I've had even people who are close to me or working on my team that that, you know, have, have done things like that. But at the end of the day, I, I get the reinforcement by by working hard and, and producing, you know, doing good things. And the people above that recognize that, you know what I mean? And and I'm in it for the long haul. I'm not here, you know, short term, hey, if I post naked photos on Instagram, I'll get more followers, which means I'm going to get more bookings. Like, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm, I'm here for the, the longevity and, and I'm going to be writing music for the rest of my life. And I can now because I've put in the hard work to, to learn. And now that's a real, you know, that's what my life is going to be. And I can't be happier for that. Like, I'm really happy to hear amongst the, you know, the, the smaller percentage of producers that are females, you know, you and the other Laura that I've talked to, and that's even funny that like the two producers I know are both named Laura. Neither of you have actually had like, 
a really big like crowning moment. It's like, this is what happened because I was a woman and freaking this guy messed up my career because X, Y, Z. But no, like... It's- like everyone does. I've had the moments where I've come home just so upset and, and crying or whatever and thinking, oh my gosh, it's the end of the world because of this has happened. But that's not what makes the career, you know? Like, and it at the time you're like, oh, this this sucks. But, you know, like it it's not, it's not what makes the career. And, and I don't, you know, when people do ask me that question, I'm, I'll acknowledge it, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try and be like, oh yeah, there's, you know, everything's equal and whatever. But I'm also not about let's crush other people so that it can be equal. You know, we have to work towards that. And, and people like Sean are helping that happen because Sean's bringing someone like me into his, you know, what he's doing. And it means that when, you know, say for example, a mix down comes in and that, you know, some big, big artists need changes, they need critique and whatever. And he puts them onto me. Like that's saying, hey, this girl can do anything I can do, you know, and I trust her with everything. And and it's little things like that that will slowly, you know, we can't change this overnight, that are slowly going to develop the industry to become more even and to become more about, you know, the ability, not about are you a girl, are you a guy, you know, and this whole like gender. I think that's amazing that you have such a good attitude about it. And what is the deepest thought you've had in the last year? Oh, mate, that is, that's down the rabbit hole. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Deepest thought. I don't, I mean, I'm not trying, like, I can't remember specifically, like, certain things, but, like, I uh, I do have, and, like, maybe this is getting deep. I don't usually, like, I tell this to friends, but I don't really talk to people about it much. But well, I at least don't, like, not promote it, but I try not to, like, dump it on people. Mm-hmm. But, like, I have definitely experienced a lot of anxiety over the past, probably over the past, like, four, probably the past four years. Mm-hmm. Quite severely too, but I always I've always underplayed it, and I think I still do in my mind. I'm like, oh, it's not a big deal. But meanwhile, I'm like literally sitting in the corner of my shower, thinking I'm gonna die, and I'm like, it's not a big deal. Like you know, whatever. Like <laughs> you know, I always kind of just like brush it off and just like kind of move on and and try and do the things that you try to do to sort of oh, I'm not gonna say get rid of it, but you know, like try and cope with it and try and make yeah. it better and all that sort of stuff. But I think with that, I get you know, my mind starts to get into really deep stuff mm-hmm. and. I, I also have this like this weird um, mentality that I can slip into where I become almost like ugh, it's so hard to describe. I remember like I, I've been having it since I was a young kid, like probably like six or seven years old. And I remember trying to tell my mom that at that age. And I mean, still at, at now I can't even describe it, but it's like a mentality of becoming fully like almost coming out of the superficial superficial conscious thought and really going deep into the, it almost feels like I've gone like inside even further and I'm kind of looking out. It's not an out-of-body experience. It's almost like the opposite where I'm kind of fully conscious of I am a human being, but what am I? What is life? You know, like it, it's real. It's so hard to describe it. it I know the feeling of, though. Yeah, it's it's really weird. And it's almost, it, I almost like freak out. I've become like better at dealing with it now, but I almost freak out a little because it's almost like my brain needs a distraction from it. It's like my brain's like, oh, I need to talk to someone to feel normal, if you know what I mean. But it's it's almost like this, this uh, thing that that goes on in my head that just it's like the whole your whole existence sort of spins around on itself and you go oh my gosh like I'm a <laughs> I don't know how to describe it other than I'm a human being and like I'm going to die and what happens after I die and like yeah. what is what is the conscious thought in my head you know like connected to this body like it's it's a really strange sort of feeling and it's it is that kind of deep thought where I almost can't describe it 
I, I've learned as I've gotten older to like sort of just let that happen, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, you can distract yourself, which I also sometimes do, but it's literally like a, a strange feeling of just, it's almost becoming so consciously aware of yourself, but in a different way to usual, you know, it's almost like you've cut out all distractions and you're just kind of like sitting in your own head and it's yeah. it's really bizarre. I mean, if anyone else ever has that experience and you want to like, you have a good way of explaining it, please tell me. Because like still, like I remember when I was a kid and I remember my mom saying, don't worry, it's just a phase because I would freak out and my mom was like don't worry it's just a phase you know you'll grow out of it and I, I sort of didn't think about it again until I got a lot older and it happened again I was like oh my gosh like and it's different when you're older and it, and it comes about because you know you you've can kind of deal with those things a little bit a little bit differently but yeah it's it's super deep it's it's very like yeah, I, I do have a, I don't have a, I wouldn't say a fixation with death, but like more recently that has sort of, for whatever reason, maybe things that have happened in my life or I've gotten a little bit older and, you know, just thinking about all of us pass away and, and what happens to us and what happens to our conscious thought and what, you know, what happens to our energy, like all that stuff I find I can get really deep into thought about it. I had to sort of pull myself out of it a few times because yeah. I started to get like too deep about it, if you know what I mean. So you said you said two things there. So the one is about like the being like hyper conscious of like of you. And I remember having that as a kid too. Like I was in fourth grade at an English class reading a book and it just hit me out of nowhere and I like started to freak out. And yeah, when like, you're a kid, you really like Yeah, you almost like it's weird. It's like this is my hand. But wait. That's that's yeah. literally it. Yeah. Like it's like your brain's your conscious thought is on the inside and your body's just kind of like moving around and you're like, oh my. Oh my gosh. Yeah. People are probably listening to this and being like, you guys are crazy. Like, what, yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah, I remember like having one of those thoughts, right? And it's like, my name is Wyatt. Like, that is how other humans know me. And you're literally explaining it like how I think about it, yeah. but I also, it's hard to like get it out. Yeah, exactly. Like, seeing your reflection when you're in that mind state and you're like, this is how people perceive me. Like, it's mind blowing. And then you're like, yeah, my name is Laura, but am I really Laura? Yeah. Like, you know, who like, who am I? Am I just controlling? controlling this body you know what I mean like like you ever see the one Disney movie uh what's it called inside out you know what I'm talking about where they like the control the mind so the first time I watched that I was on a flight I think I was going to LA or something and the girl next to me was watching it and she had subtitles on I literally sat and watched the whole movie no headphones and I started crying next to her and I was like she looked over at me and I was like just been watching this whole movie and reading it and now I'm crying like it's like the whole time I wasn't watching anything I could have just put on my on my screen in that vein of thought leading to the to the other thought that I had when when you when you were talking so like when you're talking about like what happens after death and everything like basically we have like two categories ish right up to this day and age of like what happens after death there's like the religious yeah side of it and then there's like the I guess the scientific part of it I mean kind of you know what I mean so the the scientific part is you're dead that's it you know what I mean maybe your energy gets passed on into you know your molecules get passed on somehow somehow but whatever basically you did yeah, that's it and then the religious side is that you know there's more than afterlife yeah, or there's heaven or you get heaven. reincarnated exactly or... and so this is this is interesting like because at the very beginning of the conversation you said something about a simulation and it's interesting because I never really thought about this before but the religious view of it is technically just uh, a simulation it right? is, it's a very eloquent way of saying a simulation right is that you, your spirit is in your body and then when you die you leave the body so you're technically <laughs> That is weird. <laughs> it is. It's it's a similar. You know, if you go for the whole Christian or Catholic Christian thing, it's it's God is runs the simulation yeah. kind of thing, and it it is. I don't know in ter in terms of that stuff. Like I was 
raised Catholic. And as a kid, I was very much like, you know, I just, it was a good peace of mind for me to be like, it's it's almost a good way to explain it so that it's not so scary, if you know what I mean, yeah. like about how people die. And, and it is actually like, for me, it was a good way to deal with death, you know, like it was, it was a little bit easier. As I got older, obviously, you know, I got into high school and I started to question all these yeah. things, That's the whole like of the sex before marriage stuff and, you know, all that sort of, you know, don't eat meat on Good Friday and all that sort of stuff. And I was starting to learn a lot about other religions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was learning about Islam and Judaism and Buddhism and, you know, and I really, there were things I could take from every religion that I was like, wow, that's really, you know, insightful. You know, there's, there's things in every religion that, that are, mm-hmm. I find really interesting and really, really cool. Yeah. Um, more in the spirituality sense. After I left school, I was very, not lost, but, you know, I was just like, I'm starting to just put together what, what I am. And I, and I think of it more as a spirituality sense rather than religion, because it, it just sort of puts my mind at ease. But I very much became fixated with death and what happens. And I was so, it was so dire and, and scary to me that we die and it's darkness and you're alone. And, you know, it just I just found that, that so scary. I did talk to a few, you know, I've talked to many, you know, it comes up in conversation, you talk to people about it. And I remember talking to this one lady who was talking to me about the whole energy thing because she was trying to sort of console me a bit because she could see I was just like, this is crazy. And, you know, not, you know, I'm not like, well, I don't think there's a one guy up there that says you live, you die. And I don't think there's 18 gods. And I, you know, I just kind of was, I think I was looking more from a scientific point Mm. of view. The whole energy thing really struck a chord with me because I did learn, you know, at uni energy, you can't just get rid of energy. It doesn't just disappear. It's always transferred into something new and I think that's what that what re- that's what really put me at ease that you know your however you want to describe it your consciousness your soul your you know whatever it is that helps us to make conscious decisions and be aware of what's what's happening that energy can't just disappear you know what I mean it's got to go somewhere and whether it's in conscious thought form or something else I again I still am not sure and no one really is but it's that transfer of energy that I've really sort of focused on and and not that 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 doesn't give me like give me any more like it doesn't tell me any more but it just sort of gives me this sort of you know thought of the energy moves to something and that kind of gives me a you know it just it just makes me relax about the whole thing and and you know what everyone always says oh oh, well, we all die and every person dies. I'm like, yeah, but what if it's horrible for every single person? Like, we can't come back and tell each other, like, dying is bad and it sucks and, you know, like, we don't don't know. But the the transfer of energy is really really what I sort of cling to a little bit. And I'm always finding my spirituality. I think my spirituality is is more in, in lifestyle and, you know, family and friends and surrounding yourself with good people and, and, you know, looking after yourself and things like that. I know that sounds really random, but, you know, and I am a bit of a hippie. I like to be nice to people and I like to be nice to the animals and the earth. And, you know, like I'm not full on hippie, but like, you know, it, it's more just I like to be nice and kind to people because it makes me feel good, you know. Yeah. And I, I don't want to, you know, fester more yeah. chaos. And I want other people to feel good about themselves as well. I know that's a random tangent. But oh. yeah, I think very much like the whole the whole circle of death was very much, well, not circle of death. You know, that cycle is very much, you know, I've been thinking more about transfer of yeah. energy more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. No, that totally makes sense. And so is, is what you just explained, is that your current spiritual beliefs? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I've sort of pulled myself out. I think I was thinking too deeply about it. Mm. I was getting so overwhelmed with it. Whereas now I'm like, I've sort of said, okay, it's a transfer of energy. One thing that I did miss, so my grandma passed away two years ago and 
my whole family were in there, like in the room as she sort of went from conscious to, well, Mm. unconscious to pass away. Mm -hmm. And I actually missed that very moment. Killed me. I I hated that. But, and I thought, and I know this, I didn't need to see her. We said the things we needed to say before Mm. she passed away. So I had no problem and she didn't need me there or anything like that. But the thing that I found interesting was as soon as I walked in the door and saw her face, I knew. And it's weird because the body's the body. She wasn't, she was already unconscious. She wasn't, it's not like she had a heart monitor up to her and I could hear a flat line or anything like that. You know, she she was just laying there as she had been the whole time. But just by looking for, and I know that's probably more of a physical thing, but just by looking from her, I knew that that energy wasn't there anymore which is like a really sort of bizarre thought. But I think for me as a sort of coming to terms with experience, experience, you know, maybe seeing that that changeover could have given me even more insight into the whole transfer of energy. But I mean, look, I'm open-minded. I'm not, that's where I'm at at the moment that, you know, I think about the energy's got to go somewhere. I don't know where it is and I don't really mind where it is. I just know that the energy's got to go somewhere. But, you know, I'm sure I'll hear plenty more theories. And You explained a concept that I too have found a lot of solace in, quote unquote. Um, um, I, I would deem myself as a rather spiritual individual, but I feel like too often, we were even talking about this earlier, about the two sides, like the scientific and the spiritual. And we, I think there's this misnomer that they have to exist independently of each other. And I don't think that's true. I don't even think it's a Venn diagram. I think it's, they're the same thing. We're just using different words to describe things. For example, a Mormon belief. So I, I'm Mormon in Utah. There's, there's lots of Mormons. Very Another term is LDS is what we call ourselves. So a lot of Mormons, we have this belief, it's, it's called eternal families. When people uh, get married in the thing, it says you are husband and wife until death do you part. Or some religions believe, no, once you, you know, marriage does not carry on past death, you know, so on and so forth. So, but we do, we believe that, you know, if you're married here, you're going to be married. Forever. That's yes, real forever. That's forever. <laughs> that's, that is not till the end of life. That is eternity. And so it's the same with like, we believe that our sons, our daughters will be our kids forever. Parents will be parents forever, so on and so forth. And so, you know, the, so that's a spiritual belief. And then, you know, I started looking around, you know, scientifically, quote unquote, about that. And I was like, you know, is it just a belief? I mean, is there any evidence of it in, you know, normal life? And to my own experience, I say yes, because you explained it. You actually explained it very, very well. Is that like when you were saying that like, ah, oh, there just can't be an end after death, you know, like you can't just come to a stop. And so that was one of the things that, that, that kind of resonated with me is that like we resist endings so much, but why? Why do we resist endings? And so maybe, maybe that's a part of it is that it's, it's just something embedded inside of us that we resist endings and maybe it's symbolic of eternal families or something like that. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. Also, you know, I I can't fathom the fact that you could fall in love with someone so much, whether it's a wife or a husband or your kids or anyone that you can love these people so deeply. And then when you die, it's done. It's done. It's completely done. No more. It just stops right there. I can't fathom that. I can't fathom that we spend so much energy and so much time and so much feelings that when we die, it's done. No more. It just Exactly. I, I know exactly what you mean. But also the thing is, it's different. It's almost like, and this is something that uh, my grandma said before she passed away. We found out, so she had 
cancer and it was probably a year from when she found out to mm-hmm. when she passed away. And, you know, we they did treatments and things like that. And she had this final appointment where they pretty much said, there's nothing more that mm-hmm. we can do and, you know, all that sort of stuff. She was out walking with my dad after the thing and they were just sort of talking and she goes, you know, this is going to be a lot harder for you guys than it is for me because that's the thing. When she goes and in the theory, she dies, she's gone, you know, she doesn't exist. But for us, we're the ones that carry on mm-hmm. the feelings, the thoughts, the memories. You know, it's us that really hold on to that eternal love because once she's gone, you know, we don't really think about what, you know, who knows, she might consciously not exist and not be able to think about that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. But for us, that's still very real for us and that love continues no matter how long she's gone yeah. until we continue and then the next generation and, and so on and so forth. Random side note, but something I find really interesting is have you ever heard of those kids who from when they can talk, tell their parents about how they came through a tunnel and that's how they got here? I do. Have you ever heard that? I that do. is, that's the mind-blowing stuff. I do. And it comes from such a young age where it's like they, how, they can't be taught that. And kids, there's this whole theory with kids where, you know, they forget, they go through phases and they forget about things. Mm-hmm. But if they carry it on for years and years and years, that's how you know that it's a real, you know, like it's a real thing essentially. And that's these kids who say these things to the parents and the parents have no idea. They're like, where have you gotten this from? We've never yeah. lived in Scotland. And then they go back to Scotland and there's some link and you're like, it's all just one giant black hole that's going through time and it's some interstellar thing. And like, you know yeah. what I mean? That's yeah. a random, random side note. But I also find that that sort of stuff really interesting. And it reminded me of something. So when you were saying that your grandma said it's harder, it's it, the hardest part is for you guys. You know, for me, I, I, I go on. That's kind of the easier part. And I guess this is this isn't necessarily pertaining to death. It's more so a phrase that I heard one time that was a deep thought. You, we, we all have heard the phrase, I would die for you. You know, people say that all the time. Oh, I would die for you. But that's actually is as noble as it is to say that that's kind of not the noblest thing to say because dying is easy. To die for someone is very easy. What's hard is to live for someone, to live every day and to make every single decision based around a certain person's happiness. A hundred percent. It is It is hard. And it, and it's pulling out of, of not being selfish. And sometimes people can justify it because they feel good for doing it. You know, they go, you know, people might do something. They're like, oh, I'm going to do this for this person because it'll make that person feel good, which is going to make me feel good sort of thing. Yeah. But there are so many situations where it's not about that. You know, I have, say, for example, cousins with disabilities abilities who, you know, seeing my aunties and uncles look after them, they live for them. They live to give them a quality of life. Mm-hmm. And they essentially, and, and this is going to sound, this isn't actually how it is, but it's almost like they're giving up their life for them to serve them, to give them the quality yeah. of life. And it is very much that I'm living for you. And and I think you're right. It, it, it's it's almost easy to to die for someone, you yeah, know what exactly. I mean? Because it's there, it's done. It's not every day I'm doing everything for you and I live it out and, and all of that sort of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, that is interesting theory. You mentioned <laughs> that. So, I mean, tying into this this conversation that we're having, you mentioned that you had, do you still struggle with anxiety or you, you had anxiety? I do, mm-hmm. but I very much come to... Contr- uh, I, I don't know if controls are what it's almost like I feel like I'm getting rid of it like yeah. I don't I know that it like doesn't work like that like I still have bouts of anxiety but compared to what it was it, it's so much better and I just went through so many different I tried everything I just went and I never I never went to I never went to a doctor who was like you have you know anxiety I realized it on my own yeah. when I thought I had to go to hospital because I thought my lung was collapsed or something like that and then I woke up the next day and I felt fine that's when I realized this isn't a physical thing like your brain is telling your body things you know from all of this and I eventually at first 
first I thought, oh, okay, now I realize it's all in my head. It'll go away. Like, haha, I know it exists. Now it's gone. It so didn't work like yeah. that. You know, I knew what was going on and I still was like, why isn't it stopping? So I literally tried everything. I tried, you know, I went and saw like psychiatrists. I went and started exercising all the time. I started meditating. I started, you know, doing all these things. And eventually I came up with a combination that really helped. And whilst I don't think I'm all the way back to where I was before all of this stuff. And to be honest, like realistically, like before all this, I wasn't an adult. So my, the things I worried about were different, you know, things matter more than they did. But in saying that, I've definitely can get back to, you know, something that's a lot more solid ground. So you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it still definitely exists. I'm not going to pretend that it's not there, but definitely the way I've dealt with it and and where it's come to now is is a lot more, you know, is a lot better. That, I'm really, really happy to hear that because I feel for you. I really do because I've struggled with anxiety for 15 years ever since I was a kid. The, the reason why I, I, I asked that and I brought that up is because when we were talking about, you know, it's, it's easy to die for someone, it's hard to live for someone. When I was going through some of like my hardest mental times with anxiety and depression, the idea of suicide and dying in general, it seemed like a sweet release like it seemed like because it, it is the easy way out right it is that is what it is I mean we can't even pretend to understand what people go through when they commit suicide what they're going through or what's going on I mean it, it would it would be crude to even think of you know to, to even pretend that we know what they're going through but at the same time suicide is kind of the easy way out because you're you're calling it quits you know what I mean you you're pulling the lifeline so to say yeah definitely I mean like I was always very self-aware as, as a young kid and I never never had any experience with any form of mental health issues as I was growing up as I was a teenager you know I didn't didn't have the eating disorders I didn't have depression you know I kind of had a pretty and and I say in in, in my mind I had a pretty cruisy childhood you know like everything was was I say in my head you know it was easy essentially I didn't have too many issues and as I started to go through this anxiety obviously I learned a lot about mental health and I know anxiety is a new buzzword and it's, you know, the the whole like white girl's response to mental health or something, you know what I mean? But, um, and like, I'm never, I don't ever, you know, I try not to preach to people on social media about these things, but I love to, if anyone comes to me to talk about things, like I love talking about it because, you know, even if what my experience doesn't, you know, isn't the same as someone else's, little bits and pieces can help everyone. And, mm. and if any words can help people, that's, that's the important thing. But, I noticed when my anxiety was really bad, all I wanted to do, and I and I still to this day, so, you know, I've never suffered from depression or, or any other form of mental illness, but I remember when my anxiety was really bad and all I wanted to do every day was go upstairs, go to my bed and sleep because if I slept, I wouldn't have to deal with these issues, you know? And at the time, I didn't think anything of it except for how good is sleep because it's a relief. I don't have to worry about, you know, I'm not anxious, I'm not stressing out. You know, I remember I would go through these huge, I would have these, you know, bouts of anxiety anxiety and just go, I need to lie down and we'll just fall asleep because one, I'm so exhausted from it, but two, it means it'll go away. And then after the fact, I realized that that's a pretty dire thought to have. I would rather sleep and be unconscious than deal with this sort of stuff. And it, it is a real thing. And and again, like I never think of myself, I would never want to, or in my mentality, I don't ever want to take my life. And, you know, I'm very much, I like to work hard and I like to fight. And in my head, you know, anxiety is horrible, but it's a challenge and I need to get through it. And I, you know, it, it's not something to, I guess, give up on, which no, obviously, as you said, people who commit suicide, I'm not even going to begin to understand. I know how dire it must be in their heads. And it is true that it's that kind of relief from, from your own head 
head and, and what's going on. Having that anxiety, to be honest, as much as I would love to be always be carefree and always feel like a kid and think like a kid, I've learned a lot from that and about other people, about myself and and just about life in general. And it's really, it's taken me to, you know, places, it's taken me to, you know, personally, emotionally, psychologically to like really, really low places. But the amount I've learned from that is is insane. And I don't think I would be the same person without learning from those experiences. In those anxiety states, I mean, what, what has been kind of the darker moments of your life? When was your rock bottom? And so to say. I probably have a couple of times. I remember the first time that the anxiety was so real that it almost took me to hospital. And that was when I finally realized what it, what it was. But I also didn't realize at that point that a lot of the symptoms or going on from that, that a lot of the symptoms were anxiety. I thought, I can't tell you the amount of times I went to the doctor being like, I had, you know, I had heart scans. I had, you know, my gut checked, like all this stuff. And it's all, you know, flow on symptoms from, from you know, what do they call it? Like long, t- not long-term anxiety, but, you know, the not just the little random bouts of anxiety. Like, oh, chronic anxiety you know, like chronic anxiety yeah. yeah you know not like an acute you know situation it was it was from more chronic anxiety and i eventually worked it out because i literally one day just googled you know what are the symptoms of anxiety or you know mm-hmm. what are the signs and symptoms <laughs> and it was like 12 of the 15 had been things i'd experienced and and that put me at ease too but probably the darkest moments besides i mean originally working it out i probably have probably have two or three one was was that day where i woke up and i would always wake up feeling great and being like oh my gosh i don't have anxiety you know, I feel good now, which means it's all in my head and everything's good. And I remember only 45 minutes later going, walking upstairs and getting into bed and just going, if I go to sleep, you know, it'll go away again. You know what I mean? And that was definitely one. Another one, actually, this was the same, the same experience. I remember I was in, I was having a shower, just sitting there, you know, I find showers like time to think. I just, it just came over me like a massive wave and, and a very dire, I, I have, I sort of, my anxiety was very much, I had a fix. It wasn't a social anxiety or anything that like that. It's a, it's a fixation on, on death and, and dying maybe because one, I feel like I have so much left to do. Also, I've seen a lot of young people more recently pass away. And also I had, I had an incident where I went to hospital for a while and at the time I was totally fine with it, but maybe delayed onset, I've realized that life is quite fragile. Mm. Anyway, so I was in the shower and it just came over me and it got to the point where I was like, I am going to fall over and die right here. Like this was very much like tunnel vision. I I had to like hold onto the wall and like sit down and I was just completely freaking out and no one was at home, which is the best thing for me in terms of when I get really anxious and and I know this is, is the good long-term thing but if I have someone to talk to I'm just my brain's distracted and it doesn't go in into its you know my brain kind of overthinks everything as I'm sure everyone's does but you know it gets me into this role of thinking about you know oh this is you know I have a sore this maybe it's you know maybe I'm dying or you know like I know that sounds really silly but that's kind of what it rolls into and no one was home and I just go what am I going to do I pretty much got out of the shower still with soap in my hair and was like I just need to get out of the shower I need to you know I walked downstairs I called my family being like when's anyone getting home like Anyway, and I just kind of sat there in this state and I kind of got myself into an unstable equilibrium where I was like, well, I'm panicking, but I'm still alive. So everything's, we're okay for now. And then I remember my family got home and we're all sitting on the couch. I didn't say a word to them. I didn't, with almost all my anxiety, I would never tell anyone. I would, as it was happening before or after, I wouldn't talk to anyone about it. And I was sitting there and we're all talking and inside my head, I'm going, you know, everything's okay. Just sit there, talk to them. Everything's okay. I'm still freaking out, you know, this whole thing. 
mid-conversation, I just lie down on the couch and just close my eyes and go, if you sleep, you know, it goes away sort of thing. And this was mid-conversation with my family. And I think that was, and I knew at this point that it was anxiety, but that was a point where I went, it's not okay because even talking to people, distracting you isn't enough, you know? And I remember I did eventually open up the conversation because I didn't want to tell people when it was happening because I was like, what are they going to do? They're going to go, you know, let's do this. Do you need to go to the hospital? Is everything okay? And that'll make it almost worse. But I remember telling my family, I did eventually sort of mention it to them and tell them and they go, we knew that something wasn't quite right. You just haven't been yourself. Things, you know, we just could tell that there was something. And, And I don't think they fully understood it at first, the impact of the anxiety and what it did to me and all this sort of stuff. But it was good to tell them and they didn't then start treating me differently or doing anything differently, but it just meant that I knew I could talk if I needed to. Not that I couldn't before, but it's more like when you have to bring it up for the first time and explain yourself, it's it's kind of overwhelming. Whereas once they already knew, you know, I can tell them, oh, it's been really good or this has happened or I found this helped or this day was really bad or, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't think, you know, they don't, not they don't blink at it, but, you know, it doesn't become a huge big issue. It becomes something that, oh, okay, you know, anxiety, it's there and it, it, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. You can, you know, do things to overcome it and fix it. And it doesn't have to be the death of you, if you know yeah. what I mean. Thank you so much for going into that. On the opposite side of the sky, I mean, we've been really like, we've been really d- digging really deep, especially into like, you know, the, the harder things that you've went through. So let's talk about the happy things that you've went through. Uh, so here's a question, right? Let's say there's a supervillain. The supervillain has the ability to take away the most beautiful, happy, amazing memory that you have. What would be that memory that you're like, no, don't take that away. That's my favorite one. Don't don't touch that. I mean, I love my family and friends. So I would want to put any experience that that is me with my family mm. on the top of the list. And there are there are a few in there that, you know, where I've, I've gone away on holidays with my entire family, which have been beautiful, amazing memories. But to be honest, there's one moment that happened last year and it's going to sound, re- again, I'm trying not to get too deep in it, but it happened last year. Every year I go away at Easter and I go away to up in, it's this place nearby Bay in Australia and my parents I go away with my parents and they all go off to a music festival and I sit in a little cottage you know a separate little cottage on a farm it's a macadamia farm and I just hang out Uh it's always been like the holiday before the year gets hectic and it's Uh like time to relax and I had been dealing with anxiety. This is last year. I'd been dealing with anxiety. And I remember the first three days I was there, my brain was just like, it was just killing me. Like I was just, and it wasn't even all the anxiety. It was me questioning myself as a person and just thinking I wasn't a good person and and beating myself up over and over and over, you know, about a mistake I'd made, you know, or, you know, I'd find a mistake that I'd made in the past and gone, why did you, you know, you're a bad person for doing that? Or, you know, why did you make that mistake? You know, you're so silly, you know, rather than moving on from it, just fixating on it and just going over and over in my head. Anyway, I went out to this beach and I went and sat down at the beach and it was almost as if there was this moment where it's almost like my brain had gone over everything so many times and it finally went, it just kind of released it all and it went, okay, we've thought about it 20 million times and it comes up with the same response and there's nothing we can do about it so it's time to let go of it. And in that moment, I had this this feeling of, do you know when you're at, you know, you're in middle school or whatever or high school and you had, you finished, I know, your 
year break is a bit different. You you have your year break, you spring break or something. It's yeah, in, yeah. in the middle of the year, like June, July, whereas yeah. ours is December through February kind of time because that's our summer. I remember at the end of the year always, it would be last day of school and you go, I have two months to do whatever I want. I don't have to do anything. I don't have, to, I have no worries. I can do anything I want to yeah. do. I can hang out with friends. And it was just this amazing freedom, this feeling of freedom. And in that moment on the beach, it's like my mind had that exact same feeling from when I was a kid of just like pure freedom. Like you live and you can be what whatever you want, like just because of who you, wh- what mistakes you've made or who you have been or what you've done. That doesn't mean anything. You can be whatever you, you're an adult now. Like you can literally, <laughs> if you want to, you can actually change. Almost everything is, yeah. is somewhat in your control. And, yeah. and having that feeling of absolute freedom of if I want, I can just sit here on the beach yeah. for the rest of my life, you know, or just, yeah. I mean, I know in, in theory, it probably, practically it doesn't work like that. You know, you can't just sit on a beach every day, but just having that, that overwhelming feeling of, of freedom was just like a moment that I, I always try and go back and tap into. That was a moment where the anxiety didn't exist, you know, and to have that feeling is, is I always try and tap into it. And I'm, I'm so glad that I managed to feel that again, because now I know in the darkest of, of anxiety that I could have that. And it makes me realize that, you know, you can come back from things like that. As I kind of think back on my life, if I, if I ever had that, of course I had that, you know, like when you're in school and the, and the summer season comes around. Oh, it was that, so good, right? Like so <laughs> good. I think, you know, I, I kind of have a combination of that feeling of the two things that you answered with. So you answered with family and you answered with, you know, like that feeling that you get when it's summerish kind of a thing. So, but the the feeling that I, that I received kind of like is the, the the most beautiful memory I have. There's kind of two of them. One was the day I married my wife, and we started our family. You know what I mean? That that was such a beautiful experience, and it sounds like it was like what you experienced on the beach. But then also when both of our children were born, holding our kids for the first time, and like seeing them is like this is a hybrid of us. Like this is yeah, and that moment is like would be. I mean, I haven't experienced it myself, yeah. but like would be incredible. It's like unreal. I mean, I know that that some people, I, I know in like modern day, there are so many distractions and like society, I think in my head is is sort of like taking a kind of a strange turn. But going back to the pure part of it, I think that's, that's such an amazing moment to have. Yeah, absolutely. Which beckons the question, do you want to have a family one day? Yeah, I mean, I, I have, I'm always very open-minded about the future. And I think that's the way I've managed to develop the way I have. I, I didn't have a strong, you know, direction in mind. I know in terms of like as an artist, it's, you have a bit of a stronger um, line for where you want to go. But yeah. if I had of, you know, put boundaries on where I was going to be, I wouldn't be here. So I'm glad that I didn't. But I would love to have, I would definitely love to have a family of my own and definitely won't rule it out. But in saying that, I'm not. I'm not in any rush. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't have to have it at a certain time. You know, I don't think it has to be here, there, anywhere. I think at the moment, I'm probably career-wise too selfish to be able That's to bring up children in in this sort of environment. You know, but I would love to. No, I had a, a very similar conversation. Me and my wife had a very similar conversation with Dino, Bonnie, and Clyde. Cool. They they came to Utah and we took them out to dinner and because my wife was pregnant with our second kid at the time, and so we told them like, yeah, like you know, we're having another kid they're like how are you like you're going to icon like how what like how, how, do, you, do, how, do, you, how do you kids the, the reason why i bring this up is because i want you to know that when that time comes that you decide to be a mother or to start a family or what have you 
it's not going to, if you don't want it to, it's not going to detract from your career. And here's why. It's a very, 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 very big misnomer that when you have kids and when you get married, things have to come to a halting stop. And that's not true. That's not true at all. In fact, if you marry the right person and you have the right mindset with kids, things will catch fire with your career when when those things happen. Because if you think about it like this, when someone wants to prepare for a marathon, they don't go running in perfect weather. They go up in the mountains where it's cold or they go in like crazy hot weather so that when the time comes for their race, they're ready for anything. It's the exact same with having a family or having kids or what have you. Because I can promise you now that I have two kids and a wife. I'm a freaking hard worker. I get things done when things need to get done now because I know I have to. Yeah, I know exactly. what It's like if you want something done, give it to a busy person, which is definitely like how I've always been. Yeah, exactly. Keeping busy means that I get things done. Exactly. 100%. But I want you to know when that time comes, don't don't be afraid. I like the way that my parents... So my parents are still together and I love them to bits. I live... Well, I say I live with them. I live in our family home, but they're not around very often. They have a business that's interstate and, and international. So they're constantly moving around. But we still have a family dog. So I kind of have to be... I have to stay here pretty much. Um, They're still together. They're still very much happy, very much in love. And I do, and I'm not saying this is for everyone, but I do love the way that they they brought myself and my sister up. And it was very much like we are so loved by them, but their world didn't stop for us. Their world continued on and we became a part of, we obviously became a part of their world, but they didn't lose everything they had or they didn't give up or put on halt everything they had for us. Because when that happens, your life does become so much just about the kids that when the kids are grown up and gone how do you have a life again you know and and not that you can't you obviously can but it is a lot harder when you're meant you know to shift a mentality in in such a dramatic way and I think you know same thing with me if you know when I do start a family and have kids you know I'm not going I will love them endlessly and do everything to make them happy and for them to grow up you know in an amazing world but in saying that it doesn't mean that I need to give anything up or my life has to stop or or anything like that you know there will be a part of my life they won't be my life and nothing else yeah. because as soon as they grow up like I did and, and move out and have their own ambitions you know I need to survive as well yeah you know exactly. what I mean I think this kind of ties into what we were talking about, talking about at the very beginning when you were kind of hyper focused on yourself, right? When you were hyper focused on yourself, that's when things kind of like got weird. I think it's the same with kids. You know, you still have to have a life. If you're hyper focused on your kids, it's not good. Definitely not. Anyways, I got one final question for you and then I'm going to go hang out with my family. Let's say that you were able to sit down with a higher power and you were able to ask this higher power a question. What would be the one question that you would ask them? I Like I really think, to be honest, that, that the only question would be what happens after death, really. And I know that people get in that situation and go like, why, you know, why did you give, why does children's cancer exist and things like that? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think there's so many things like that that in my mind make sense. Like I remember when I was a young kid I, I don't know whether I watched a documentary or a video or something and and something that really struck with me is you have for something to exist you almost need the opposite so you can't have good unless there's bad you know because you don't really it would just be neutral there would be no good because that's just normal life and there 
you know, the same with, or like, say, for example, good versus evil, you know what I mean? Or healthy versus unhealthy. You know, you can't, you, if everyone was always healthy, it wouldn't be called healthy, really. It would all just be a neutral state of living. And so I think, you know, people, I've heard a question similar to that asked before where people go, oh, you know, I'm going to ask, you know, they would ask something like, why do unjust things happen to good people? And as much as I hate when things like that happen, it almost needs to. It, it I hate that it needs to, but it, it sort of, it, it gives people a lease on life. It it, uh, it also shows people to enjoy what they have while it's there. And also that it, it shows you the opposite. It, it shows you the bad that can happen so you appreciate the good. The one thing I would definitely ask is what does happen to us after we die? That's a good question. That's a really good question. Sippy, did you have a good time? I had a great time. I'm very deep in thought now. Awesome. Thank you so much for this. Is, do you have any final words? I just want to say hey Those to everyone. And I'm out here and I'm doing my thing and <laughs> working hard. Is there anything that you want to push or anything? Like, is there any songs coming out? Or is there anything that you want to say? Hey, go make sure go check yeah, this out. So um, pretty much I've sort of haven't been releasing as much in the past couple of months uh, just so I I can actually sit and just write and write and write. So I've been writing. I've had a lot of big, awesome remix opportunities, which have been cool that I can't really say yet, but people will sort of be hearing those soon. I've got a couple of originals that a lot of them are, a couple of them are already done. Some of them are waiting on some other stuff. Just last night, actually, I was part of a campaign with Nike Football. We did a big launch for the Socceroos, which are our Australian football team, for their kit that, that Nike have been doing. So I've been working a lot with Nike and with Nike football. We've just done some really exciting, exciting things together. And that's really awesome. So yeah, really, I don't have any releases coming up in the short term. I'm playing some really awesome gigs over here in Australia. And I'm hoping soon to push over in the States. I would really like just love to get over there because I know that my fan base is majority based in the States. So I would really love to get over there within the next year, which I'm hoping should be doable. But yeah, release wise, it'll be in the next three months, I'll, I'll start to, to push everything out and and it'll be full steam ahead from there. Perfect. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for talking to me for all that time. Absolutely. <laughs> you have fun with those spiders. I'll have fun with my spiders. I'm going to go hang out with my wife now. Thank you very much. It was so awesome to talk to you.